0: Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. The confusion, please God, stops here. Okay, uh, we are, well, we have a lot of things to talk about uh, today. Going to be talking more about tradizioni Custodes, the um, recent motu Proprio about the traditional Latin Mass. Also going to be talking a little bit later on if we have time about reception theory in regard to church law. Sounds dry, but it's going to be uh, really interesting, I think. Also, um, to just to set the stage, because we're going to be talking first about humility, we're going to look at the gospel from this uh, week's uh, extraordinary form of the Mass. This last Sunday was the 10th Sunday after Pentecost, and the gospel was from Luke chapter 18. It is the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. At that time, Jesus spoke also the following parable in order that he might show forth the difference between true and false prayer. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee, standing, prayed thus with himself, O God, I give thee thanks that I am not as the rest of men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, as also is this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. But the publican, standing afar off, would not so much as lift his eyes toward heaven, but struck his breast, saying, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I say to you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone that exalteth himself shall be humbled, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So the Pharisee sinned through pride, and he sinned in three ways. First and foremost, he thought too highly of himself which means, secondly, that he did not give due glory to God. And thirdly, he despised his fellow men. His prayer, therefore, was no prayer at all. It was nothing but a discourse in praise of himself. And with the utmost pride and self-righteousness, he's relating to God all the good works that he's performed, uh, of which, however, you notice he only really can enumerate two. And he implied that Almighty God must be very glad to have such a valuable servant as himself. And and it it is just, you know, it's it's meant, all the parables are meant to shake you up. And this is loathsome and irritating to see this this wretched fellow extol himself before God in, in such a way. Now, Bishop Necht, in his practical commentary on Holy Scripture, had this to say. He said, of course, pride like this is stupid and despicable. Of what good could his fasts be if he did not practice them with a conviction of his guilt before God and in a spirit of penance? He had no longing for the Redeemer. He asked not for pardon because he imagined himself to be a perfect servant of God without sin and therefore without need of pardon. In fact, that was the great uh, um, problem with the Pharisees, that they believed themselves to be without sin. Uh, Bishop Neck says, this shows us how completely pride can blind a man. And, and he is blinded because not only does he, uh, um, is, he, is he proud and, and, and sees himself in a false way, but he sees everybody else in a false way too. Um, uh, in his pride, he, he not only despises his fellow men, but he judges them rashly. Uh, he puts them all down collectively as great sinners. I, I'm glad that I'm not like other men, right? I'm not a robber. And, and yet at the same time, as Bishop Necht would say, he was robbing his neighbors of their good name. So you can see that pride also makes a person uncharitable. The proud man is so full of of a distorted self-love that he can't find room in his heart to love his neighbor. And and think about this. The the Pharisee did perform uh, certain good works, but the good that he did uh, lost all merit in the sight of God because it was not done for the love of God, but only for the gratification of his own pride. So therefore, in other words, he didn't have a good intention in doing it. And we must pray. If our prayers are going to be efficacious, we must pray with a good intention. And, and here's the, uh, the subject for today, our humility. The prayer of the Pharisee was worthless before God because he extolled himself and, and uncharitably judged his fellow men. Only humble prayers are pleasing to God. Only humble prayers obtain a hearing. So we see the necessity of humility. And, and here's the, the chief lesson to be learned from this parable, which is in, in the, our Lord's final words, the words with which he concluded it. He says, everyone that exalteth himself shall be humbled, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Without humility, there can be no forgiveness of sins, no grace, no heaven, right? No, no, no bright future. And so humility then is an indispensable virtue. Even uh, even as pride lies at the root of all sin, so is humility the foundation for all virtue. And just, we can read that in Saint James uh, four verse six. He said, "God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble." Now, since the uh, publication the promulgation of Pope Francis's, uh, shall we say, his frontal assault against the the traditional Latin Mass, which which also means it's an assault on the priests who celebrate the mass and the people who assist at it, the faithful. But I've seen an awful lot of back and forth on social media. I have not engaged in it, but I've, I've, you know, looked at it, and I took it to confession with me this last weekend. And you know, one of the things that I hear from from my Novus Ordo friends regarding the the rather cold reception that some Catholics, including myself have given to this, this mot proprio, is that they say, you know, um, you traditional Catholics, you know, you're you're proud. You should either shut up or get out of the church. Honestly, I, those exact words, shut up or get out. So in other words, we, we are, you know, guilty of the sin of pride, and that is the root of our disobedience. Although, how precisely I am being disobedient by going to Mass at a diocesan church that's in union with the local bishop and the Pope, I don't know exactly, but there it is. Um, you know, we should have humility. They say, just go along. You go along without a peep. Do whatever the Pope says. Well, as with all virtues, as important a virtue as humility is, all virtues are on are on a mean. Right? They're they're in the center of a scale that where where one end is uh, the sin of defect, and the other end is the sin of excess. With the virtue. In the center. So, if, if humility is in the middle, then uh, you sin by defect uh, when you give into pride. And on the other hand, uh, there the you can sin by excess if you have an excess of humility that becomes um, obsequiousness, right? To be uh, attentive or obedient in a ser- to a servile degree, all right? Not to a just degree, but to a servile degree. Uh, to be a, a fawning toady or or a, a you know a, a parasite, a psychophant. The, you know, think of Wormtongue and Lord of the Rings. Oh, I only ever meant to serve you, my Lord. You know, it's, and and, I, get, and, and I, I equate that with the Catholic who says the Pope, I'm with the Pope, right or wrong. Well, That's nonsense. Now, to understand the virtue of humility, you need to look at the deadly sin of pride. And we're going to do that. I've got my, uh, one of my uh, favorite catechisms, one of my go-to is my Catholic faith, which is from actually the late 40s, I think. And uh, it asks the question, what is pride? And says, pride is an inordinate love of one's own excellence, an excessive self-esteem. And I don't suppose anybody in our modern culture um, <laughs> you know, suffers from that. You know, pride, it says, makes one admire oneself in the belief that, that uh, our excellent, you know, real or imagined, is the result of our own worth. Right? And our Lord condemned pride in the parable of the Pharisee and publican. And he said that the humble and, re- and repentant publican was justified in the eyes of God, while the proud Pharisee was not. And our Lord himself is the best example of humility and, and meekness and patience. Think about the crucifixion. Uh, think of the, the, the entire passion. Did, did he use his almighty power to punish those who were doing him evil? Or did he carry the cross and, and allow himself to be crucified And then hung on the cross until he died so that we could be forgiven of our sins. You see, every day God is patient with sinners today, giving us time to repent, time to change our ways, which means that God, who is almighty God, the supreme being of the universe, is not proud The proud man, uh, according to this, overestimates himself. He believes himself to be the source of his own excellence, whereas the virtue of humility disposes us to acknowledge our limitations and is opposed to pride. Pride may be called the mother of all vices, for most sins can be traced to it. From pride arises ambition, vanity, presumption, disobedience, hypocrisy, and obstinacy in sin. Ecclesiasticus 10.15 says, For pride is the beginning of all sin. He that holdeth it shall be filled with maledictions, and it shall ruin him in the end. And the book of Tobit, Never suffer pride to reign in thy mind or in thy words, for from it all perdition took its beginning. Pride was the sin of Lucifer. Pride was the sin of our first parents. It was the the, the sin of Pharaoh when he hardened his heart uh, against the people of Israel. Um it is the uh, it is the the, the sin of, of so many of the kings of israel because thou hast rejected the word of the lord it says in first kings 15 the lord hath rejected thee and the proud man wants to bring attention to himself he wants to attract note of, notice notice and, and and be honored and have distinctions and and worldly favors tends to be overconfident in himself and despises the assistance of God, which again is the is the sin of Lucifer. Proud man pretends to be greater than he is, and tries by all manner of means to attract praise of others, even using false humility to do so. But God hates pride and punishes it severely. The beginning of the pride of man is to fall off from God. God, as St. Peter says, resists the proud, and that's no nonsense. Okay. Coming back to uh, a talk about uh, Tradiciones Custodes and lots more right here on No Nonsense Catholic. Stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, a final word on this uh, uh, pride and humility before we go on. I have a deep love and appreciation for um, the traditional latin mass this is the mass that that formed the doctors of the church on the greatest saints and and even including saint uh, john the 23rd or paul vi or john paul ii um, and i did not enter into my journey into the to the traditional latin mass because of any animus any any hatred of Vatican II or of the Novus Ordo Missae, I didn't. I'm an adult convert. I didn't have a dog in that fight. I didn't know a thing about it, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, until later. What the, the problem that I had is, as I learned more about my faith, studying the Catechism of the Catholic Church, studying only Novus Ordo materials, I was struck and 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 hurt, frankly, by the relentless uh, liturgical abuse that I had to suffer. At our parish church to the point where I started looking for other parish churches and found that some of them were even worse and I'm not going to regale you with all of the with all of the problems but the point is that I went to my first traditional Latin mass an adult mass or right, in union with the with the bishop and the Pope and all of that um, just out of a, a desire to find a mass that was celebrated reverently and it was only after I you know had attended the mass because liturgy expresses doctrine and because the traditional mass expresses that doctrine so much more clearly than uh, the, the much-abused Novus Ordo, I fell in love with it. And, and I, I loved that traditional mass to the point of being willing to suffer decades, I mean, years of, of you know, decades for some people that, that are on this journey, but, um, but years and years for me personally of marginalization. And 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 being viewed with suspicion and treated like a second-class citizen, and 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 being you know marginalized, even even you know genuinely persecuted, just because I want to assist at the mass—that's my birthright. That 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 is the spiritual patrimony of the entire Western world. And I I I don't believe that that's pride, and I don't believe that telling uh, such faithful Catholics that a deep appreciation of, of the mass is something that they either need to give up without a peep or get out of the church. I don't think that's humility. All right, now I've spoken many times on this program about the hermeneutic of continuity versus the hermeneutic of rupture, so I'm just a a quick review. These terms were coined by Benedict XVI, and they were used to describe the, the, the two currents in the understanding of the church today. Now the word hermeneutic means Uh, an interpretational key. It's the the lens through which you interpret something. And so, well, Vatican II is unique amongst the ecumenical councils of the Church in that it it wasn't really doctrinal in nature. It it proclaimed no dogmas. It it, uh, issued no canons and and, uh, anathemas. And so without telling us what we must believe or not believe in regarding to its teaching, Vatican II left itself open, I would say purposely left itself open, to interpretation. Now, ever since the close of the council, Catholics on both the left and the right have interpreted Vatican II um, with this hermeneutic of rupture, which is to say that they, they would say that Vatican II represents a break with tradition, even, even a, a new start from zero. Now, the progressive hails this as the greatest thing to ever happen in the church, And the traditionalist laments it as as the worst thing to ever happen in the church. But they have this in common that they both see the the current situation of the church in terms of a pre-conciliar church and a post-conciliar church that are irreconcilably different. Now, Benedict XVI says, no, that's not possible. There are not two churches, one old and one new. And he insisted that there wasn't really a rupture with the past. Therefore, the council must be interpreted with the hermeneutic of continuity. He says, meaning that, that, that you have to interpret Vatican II, you have to understand those documents, you know, through the lens of the 2,000 years of tradition that preceded them. And that you do not reinterpret the 2,000 years of tradition through the lens of Vatican II. That, that would be utter nonsense. So, Vatican II, you know, uh, um, is in a, a historical reality, right? It's an ecumenical council. It was called by a pope, it was tended by uh, the bishops of the world. And people say, oh, you tr- you, you're a traditional Catholic. You don't accept Vatican II? Of course I accept Vatican II, because to do otherwise would be to deny reality. Now they, don't, they don't say what they mean. What they mean is. When they say, do you accept Vatican II? They're talking about the teaching of the council, but again, according to whose interpretation? See, there's no expiration date on the deposit of faith. God doesn't change. The truth does not change. The dogmas of the church are not subject to change. And, And I've said this many times before, and I maintain it to this day, that there is nothing... In the actual 16 documents of Vatican II that require a faithful Catholic to believe anything that he was not already required to believe before the council. Even the most uh, controversial documents, uh, uh, those on ecumenism and religious liberty, don't add anything to the deposit of faith. Now, given the uh, uniquely pastoral nature of the council, it is arguable that some of its teachings addressed a situation in the Church and the world that no longer exists. However, since 1965, since the close of Vatican II, there has been a veritable avalanche of novel teaching in the Church, teaching that was justified precisely by an appeal to the Council or to the, the spirit of the Council, which has nothing whatsoever to do with what the council actually taught. And now we come to Traditionis uh, Custodes, Traditionis Custodes, which represents uh, Pope Francis' official endorsement of the hermeneutic of rupture. Uh, that the church of today is in fact not the same as before the council. That it's something new and different that's irreconcilable with her own tradition. Now, that's a a pretty big claim, but how else could he produce this document that says that a 50-year-old rite of the Mass, composed by a committee and imposed unilaterally by papal fiat of Paul VI, that this is the unique expression of the Church's prayer, but the Mass of the Ages is something dangerous and divisive, which needs to finally be phased out once and for all. Now I'm paraphrasing, but this is what that document is is clearly intends. I I can recall, and I'm sorry I don't have it in front of me right now. Uh, this source will get it. That Pope Francis said, you know, you want the traditional Latin Mass, okay, but you can't have the the 16th century's theology that goes with it. And that's really what this is all about, is accepting this 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 new theology over and against the, the quote unquote old theology. Now. Yesterday, I saw a post on Crisis Magazine's website uh, from July 29 by Anne Hendershot. It was called Traditionis Custodes as an Hermeneutic of Envy, and I caught my eye. It's based on a reflection by an Italian professor, Massimo Viglioni, which suggests that it is the deadly sin of envy that is behind Francis's official attempt to destroy the traditional Latin mass and he used Cain and Abel as an example. Now, I must admit, I have not read Professor Viglione's reflection, nor did I read all of Anne Hendershot's article, to be frank, because I was so struck by that image, and my mind just, I mean, I was, uh, uh, it just filled with so many pictures that I decided I needed to 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 reckon it out so that I would be able to share it with you, and that's what I'm going to try and do now. And understand, I'm not a biblical scholar, none of this is de fide, obviously. These are this is my devotional reading of these passages of scripture and and my application of it to to my own situation. Uh, As you know from Genesis, Cain and Abel, God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. And Cain, in a fit of envy, then kills his brother. When God asks Cain, where is thy brother? Cain replies, am I my brother's keeper? And so we can see that that his resentment of his brother really proceeds from his resentment of God. And let's let me unpack that for you. The Bible says that Cain was an husbandman, or a tiller of the earth, and Abel was a shepherd. Abel was just, but the works of Cain were evil. Now it happened one day that they offered a sacrifice to God in gratitude for the benefits he had bestowed upon them. Abel offered the firstlings of his flock, and Cain the fruits of the earth. The Lord regarded Abel and his gifts with favour, But for Cain and his offerings, he had no regard or no respect, depending upon your translation. So God accepted Abel's offerings, but not Cain's. Why? Well, you know, most modern scripture scholars will tell you that we just don't know why. However, uh, I believe that the text really does tell us, if you look at it closely, because firstly, it tells us that Abel was just, but the works of Cain were evil. And even though this is is a, a primeval story, Right, a pre prehistorical, if you will, um, it was written by uh, this version of it was written by Moses. It's being told by Moses, who is traditionally understood to be the author of Genesis, and his audience was that generation that had received the covenant at Mount Sinai. So for them, these sacrifices had meaning. Uh, uh, sacrificing the fruits of the earth, right, grain and fruit, bread and wine, those were offered as as thanksgiving, where an animal sacrifice is an offering of atonement for sin. So like the publican in Jesus' parable, the offering of Abel uh, humbly acknowledges his sinfulness, whereas Cain's thank offering, even though Scripture says that his works were evil, his thank offering was like that of the proud Pharisee who exalted himself more than God. Now, Scripture doesn't say precisely how Almighty God manifested his pleasure or, or, or disfavor. But the consensus among the fathers and doctors seems to be that God sent down fire from heaven, which consumed Abel's offering. Whereas Cain's offering, notwithstanding his every effort, uh, remained unconsumed, which brings to mind another pair of sacrifices in the Old Testament, that of the prophet Elias, or Elijah, if you prefer, and the priests of Baal. A little background, there was a terrible drought uh, in the in the holy land, right, in the promised land. And there was a resulting famine, and King Ahab, king of Israel, and the people were appealing to the false god, Baal, as well as to Jehovah. They were trying to serve two masters, God and Baal. So the prophet Elias, right, the only remaining prophet of the Lord, by the way, the only, all the priests had been killed, he uh, uh, he is called, he calls upon the people to make a decision. He said, I only remain a prophet of the Lord, but the prophets of Baal are 450 men. So he says, Let two bullocks be given us, and let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces, but put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under it. Call ye on the names of your gods, and I will call on the name of my Lord. And the God that shall answer by fire, let him be God. All right, we'll talk about what happens next, how that relates to Cain, Abel, the Pharisee and the Publican, and Traditionus Custodes when we come back with lots more right after this. Stay with us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio and No-Nonsense Catholic. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about, uh, well, Tradiciones Custodes and Cain and Abel and the hermeneutic of envy, and we were actually in the midst of the uh, liturgical showdown between the sacrifice of Elias and the sacrifice of the 450 priests of Baal. And uh, the priests of Baal have chosen their ox, their bullock, built an altar, placed the... uh, uh, the pieces of the ox on it, and then they start dancing around the altar and crying out to Baal. And they keep this up from morning until noon. And, and then, uh, but no fire comes to consume the sacrifice. And then Elias starts mocking them. He says, you know, cry louder. Uh, cry with a louder voice, uh, for he's a god. Perhaps he's talking with someone. Uh, or maybe he's on a journey. Or, or he's asleep and he has to be awakened. And you know, it's it's ironic or funny, I guess, but it's like modern progressives. The, the ancient pagans apparently didn't have a, much of a sense of humor So because they, they take him seriously. I mean, either that or they really believe that their god did sleep and travel and, and have these other human attributes because scripture says that they did begin to cry louder. Uh, and then they even started to hack their bodies with knives until they were all you know covered with blood trying to get Baal's attention. And they kept it up until evening, uh, until finally they're, they're exhausted from all, of the, uh, all the vocal prayer and the liturgical dancing and, and such like you know, active participation. Uh, but all that active participation was in vain because they were offering false worship to a false god, and the absurdity of their idolatry was made obvious. Then it was the prophet's turn, and Elias erected an altar to the Lord beginning with 12 stones, which of course uh, represent the 12 tribes of Israel and are prophetic, uh, foreshadowing the the 12 apostles. And then he laid the wood on upon it, and then he placed the pieces of the ox on the wood, and then he doused the whole affair with water until it filled the trench all around the altar. In other words, making it humanly impossible to set it on fire. And that being done, he said o lord god show this day that thou art the god of israel and i thy servant and that according to thy commandment i have uh, according to thy commandment i have done all these things hear me o lord hear me that this thy people may learn that thou art the lord god and that thou hast turned their hearts again and in that instant the fire came down from heaven and consumed the holocaust and the wood and even the stones and the water you know all the water in the trench, and the people, seeing this miracle, fell on their faces, exclaiming, "The Lord, He is God!" And of course, this this image is also reminiscent of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles uh, like tongues of fire. Now, am I the kind of a traditional Catholic that Pope Francis is so concerned about? I mean, am I really comparing the Novus Ordo Missae to the worship of Baal? Am I saying the Novus Ordo is invalid? No, of course not. In fact, I dare say that the typical Catholic who assists at the extraordinary form, and that's the, who assists at the traditional Mass on on Sundays and Holy Days, um, at a parish that has the Novus Ordo every single day, and has one uh, traditional Mass, you know, a a week on Sundays, maybe on Holy Days, or maybe only once a month, all right? That that Catholic is is typical of of what people think of as as traditional Catholics, quote-unquote. And he goes to his parish church, and he, I tell you, is more thoroughly convinced of the validity of the ordinary form of the Mass than his fellow parishioners who exclusively attend the Novus Ordo. Okay, And, and allow me to demonstrate. Last Sunday, as per usual, the traditional Latin Mass at my parish was beyond standing room only. Uh, with many people, uh, myself included this time around, uh, assisting at Mass outside of the building, you know, listening on, on loudspeakers. But when Communion time comes, and the priest goes to the tabernacle and removes a ciborium that is full of hosts that were consecrated at the ordinary form of the Mass, which means that these typical Catholics, the traditional Catholics who assist at the traditional Mass at their diocesan parishes regularly approach communion knowing that they will receive a host that was consecrated at the Novus Ordo. And since 99% of traditional Catholics believe that Christ is present body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Blessed Sacrament, compared to the maybe 30% of Novus Ordo Catholics, I say that traditional Catholics take the validity of the Novus Ordo more seriously than our ordinary form brethren. The point is that validity notwithstanding, it is where worship is pleasing to God that the fire falls. And that brings us back to Cain and Abel and the hermeneutic of envy. The fire fell on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's. When Pope Paul VI imposed the new order of the mass, which, and I will say this once again, you can read the Vatican II document on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, until your eyes bleed And you will not find any mandate for a new order of the Mass. But when Paul VI imposed the Novus Ordo, he made a number of predictions and promises concerning the graces that would flow from this new Mass, which he candidly admitted was both a novelty and a many-sided inconvenience. His words, not mine. But he said that that simplifying the rites and using the vernacular, uh, this was going to make Mass more comprehensible. By the way, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium <clears throat> allowed greater use of the vernacular, but commanded the retention of Latin. okay, And how did that work out? How many Catholics are even aware of that? But he, you know Paul says you know that the, that, the, that the words understanding the words are more important than the royal robes in which they are dressed. you' talking about Latin. So he says this is going to be more comprehensible and that modern man, Right, this, this amazing chimera, modern man, who, quote unquote, so fond of plain speech, would like this new mass better. And he would finally, finally start actively participating in the mass. And then he would come to a greater appreciation of the liturgy and to a deeper understanding of his faith, etc., etc. We were promised a veritable new Pentecost, an unprecedented outpouring of divine grace. But what did we get instead? The vast majority of Catholics stopped going to Mass altogether. Vocations to the priesthood and the religious life are in free fall. Just between 1965 and the turn of the century, uh, 2002, there was a 50% decline in baptisms and Catholic weddings. Parish uh, schools and, and parish churches closing all over the country and all over the world. And a majority of Catholics who no longer believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist but use contraception and get divorced and remarried at at a rate consistent with the secular culture. Now compare that to Catholics who are rediscovering the traditional Latin Mass, who at the same time, because liturgy expresses doctrine, they're rediscovering the faith of their fathers. The the traditional Catholics, who, you know, at, at our parishes, I reside in Orange County, and the parish there, the, 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 the people that assisted the traditional Latin Mass, look just like the, the population. They're every nationality. They're every color. They're people that speak various languages that all go to this one Mass because it's in Latin. Uh, and they're, you know many of them, if not most of them, are young. They would have large families. They're engaged in the liturgy. And they were a fruitful and growing source of vocations. Traditional Catholicism, as I've said again and again, is the only sector of the Church that's actually growing instead of actively shrinking. Now, clearly, that's not what Paul VI envisioned. And Francis, like Paul VI before him, and all, against all evidence of the contrary, because it has been 50 years, he seems to think that by forbidding the traditional Latin Mass, its good fruits are just going to automatically transfer over to the Novus Ordo. And that goes against the evidence of the past 50 years, of course, and and it goes against what I think is clearly a movement of the Holy Ghost. But it also goes right against human nature. I mean, consider this. since, Since the lifting of the COVID restrictions, where the bishops told us we couldn't go to church, attendance at the traditional Latin Mass in the United States has doubled. Okay, in a year's time. And just since the promulgation Of Traditionis Custodes, which is what, three weeks ago? Parishes are reporting uh, an even further increase of attention, what, two weeks ago? The the, the parishes are reporting an increase of as much as another 40%. You know, it's like Jeffrey Chaucer said you forbid us something, and that thing we desire. But it's more than that. Um, Peter Kwasniewski, Dr. Kwasniewski, posted this on Facebook the other day from an interview with Cardinal Seurat back in 2019. He was asked, why do you think more and more young people are attracted to the traditional liturgy, to the extraordinary form? And Cardinal Seurat said, I don't think so. I see it. I am a witness to it. And young people have entrusted me with their absolute preference for the extraordinary form, more educative and more insistence on the primacy and centrality of God silence and on the meaning of the sacred and divine transcendence but above all how can we understand how can we not be surprised and deeply shocked that what was the rule yesterday is prohibited today is it not true that prohibiting or suspecting the extraordinary form can only be inspired by the devil who desires our suffocation and spiritual death how can we be surprised that a liturgy that has carried so many saints Continues to smile at young souls thirsty for God. There you have it. Where worship is pleasing to God, that is where the fire falls. All right, I have, as per usual,ly over prepared. We only have one more segment left, so I think I'm actually going to talk about what was on Father Z's um, blog here. What does the prayer really say about um, traditionis custodes and so-called reception? theory. Uh, he, that's his title, "Tradiciones Custodes and Reception Theory, or When a Law is No Law at All, which he posted on the 29th. And, and he's just to give you a taste, reception theory states that a law, in order to be a law, that is to say a binding law, must be received by the community for which it is intended. If they, that is the community, does not receive it, that is they reject it outright, or if it fails to have the effect on how they live, That presumed law is non-binding and really no law at all. And we'll see how to properly understand that and how it's been misunderstood and lots more when we come back. Stay with us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back. Final round of no nonsense Catholic talking about reception theory. Uh, according to the blog of Father John Zuldorf, Father Z, he says "Traditionis custodes" and reception theory, or when a law is no law at all. And uh, as I mentioned before the break, reception theory states that a law, in order to be binding, must be accepted, must be received by the community for which it is intended. And if that community does not receive it, it's really no law at all. Now, this does not apply to the moral law. Obviously, moral law flows from above, right? Um, and re- reception, it, it comes from God, right, and is immutable. Therefore, um, it doesn't depend on on the reception or rejection by, by human beings. Uh, an example, in the 1960s, late 60s, and early 70s, dissidents from Humana Vitae, uh, infamously tried to apply reception theory to the church's teaching on contraception. Obviously, didn't work out. Uh, reception theory does not apply to moral teaching, but it can apply to the church's disciplinary law, which includes liturgical law. And he brings up uh, as an example um, that, you know, popes make mistakes. Paul III, back in the 16th century, published a breviary uh, which departed from the tradition and it was criticized and ignored by the bishops until Pius V finally withdrew it in, in 1568. Right, uh, popes make mistakes and the faithful can see that they make mistakes and they have the right to express themselves when they do, uh, even when they do so with disciplinary laws. Um, you know, he brought up uh, a disciplinary law that he definitely thinks was not a mistake, and that was the uh, Apostolic Constitution Veterum Sapientia. From uh, Pope John the Twenty-Third, which uh, demands, uh, you know, along, you know, Vatican II said that you have to retain Latin in the liturgy. Well, he said that you have to have Latin in the schools, and that priests, especially seminarians, must be fluent in Latin uh, uh, to the point that they can study sacred theology in Latin, because that's you know the best way to understand it, because the Latin is is so um, precise. And this was an apostolic constitution that was signed on the main altar at St. Peter's Basilica, which, of course, uh, you know, was subject to wholesale neglect. It was virtually ignored. Now, here's the point that he makes, and this is the the hard-hitting thing, is that he says um, the modern Roman Rite, the Novus Ordo, was clearly not received with universal acceptance. Yes, it was pretty much brutally imposed universally in one form of experimentation after another through the 70s and 80s. However, it was not universally received, and he he obviously immediately counters the argument, Father, Father, that's not true. You know, if it was true, you could prove it, but you can't. Besides, deep down, everybody really wants the Novus of without all that Latin, or or they would if they truly had the spirit of Vatican II, which has you know engendered so many fruits. You you just hate Vatican II, right? he's, he's uh, uh, foreseeing this, this reaction. But what he said is that almost five years after the Novus Ordo uh, was imposed by Paul VI, the Sacred Congregation for Divine Worship issued a notification called Conferentiarium Episcopalium, which insisted that bishops should, I quote, should endeavor to secure the acceptance of the order of the mass of the new Roman Missal by priests and laity. Endeavored to secure acceptance. After five years, obviously the Noah's order was not universally received. And then he points out all these other... In 1980, you've got a document in in Estimabile Donum which outlined the abuses that had cropped up over the, the decade between 1970 and 1980. And here's the point. He says where there is abuse, there is not reception. And he says, ironically by those who say that they do accept it, and only it, but then twist it into something that it's not. You know, I, I've often pointed out, I think even earlier in this program, I would never have sought out the traditional Latin Mass if they had simply done the Novus Ordo by the book. Father Z says, when you receive, you say the black and do the red, which is to say that you, you say the, you know, as a priest, you say the prayers and you do the uh, prescribed actions. You don't, you know... Uh, uh, Ad lib and, and and make up your own thing. In 1984, John Paul II gives us the as you know, according to Benedict XVI, the unnecessary indult for the 62 missile, because again, the Novus Ordo wasn't universally received. Uh, if people wanted the old ways enough that even John Paul II acquiesced, and then in 1998, after uh, Archbishop Lefebvre consecrated the bishops, he. Uh, issued the motu Proprio Ecclesia Dei Ad Flicta, which opened up greater use for the traditional Mass and set up the fraternity of St. Peter and commanded the generosity of bishops, not only towards priests who want to celebrate this Mass, but to the faithful who wanted to assist at it. Now, how do you, how you enforce that is a good question. Now, in April of 2001, Congregation for Divine Worship issued the uh, Redemptionis Sacramentum, which, you know, was an admonition to curb liturgical abuse found. In, uh, and that was followed in May by an instruction called Liturgium Authenticum, which named the abuses and how to correct them. Now, as, you know, with various documents before it, you know, it was, this was not received, you know, uh, um, it, it was dealing with manifest and it was dealing, he says, rented lips, I'm sorry, with manifestations of non-reception of the Novus Ordo in the first place, which is to say abuses. He says, remember, liturgical abuses are manifestations of non-reception. And then, of course, in 2007, we have Benedict XVI and Samorum Pontificum. You know, the, He calls it the Emancipation, emancipation Proclamation of the motu Proprio. And then in 2001, uh, just a couple weeks ago, Francis has issued his landmark decision, uh, about the growing desire for the traditional Roman rite in his uh, Traditionis Custodis, which he calls his Plessy versus Ferguson. And Plessy versus Ferguson was a case in which the court upheld that state mandated segregation laws did not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And he's trying to suggest that something similar is going on here. He says the fact that he's trying to suppress the traditional Latin mass is more proof. That far from being universally received, the Novus Ordo Mise is being rejected. Some reject it because of what they see as doctrinal deficiencies, but he says the majority of those who want tradition reject it not out of disdain but simply because they prefer the older form. And uh, and he goes on to you know to say that to be valid, a law must be accepted, and brings up a, a number of uh, um, other articles, and one about. Viterum sapientia, Viterum sapientia, which I just reread the other day, and it is a—it's magnificent. And you wonder what the church would be like if they had actually paid attention to it, if Vatican II had actually been implemented according to the documents and according to the will of the the pope that called the council, because it wasn't. Uh, and he mentions, by the way, uh, Viterum sapientia was never abrogated. But it was obviously not received by the community for which it was intended, especially the seminaries, and therefore it became a, a you know a, a dead law it was dead on arrival, and he said that his in his prediction is that traditionis Custodes is also not going to be received in the long run, and will prove to be no law at all, and I had uh, prepared today a, a whole list of bishops who have dispensed um, their their traditional priests and and uh, diocesan priests that say the the Mass at uh, in parochial churches and so forth, they've simply dispensed them from Article 3 of uh, the motu Proprio. Now, and there are some bishops that, that hate tradition and that will turn on those people. That's inevitable, really. Um, it's, you know, th- this document wouldn't exist if that wasn't the case. But uh, Father Z says it is his sense that there are so many young priests and young people who now know and love the traditional Mass that they will simply find a way to keep it going. You know, and it might be simple as his father having a private mass and leaving the doors open but not putting on the schedule, that sort of thing. You know, um, and it might be said, the bishop will strike down that young priest, he says, but if he does, then more will spring up. He said, I don't think it can be stopped. And that uh, reminds me of the conversation I had with the Bishop of Lake Charles a few years ago. He wasn't a particular booster of the traditional Latin mass, but, but he generously applied it in his diocese because he said, it's clear that the people want it. He says, it's clear to me that it is a movement of the Holy Spirit. And who am I to stand in the way of that? Um, but he says, um, he thinks there's going to be a lot of tears and anguish because of bishops that are, you know, hostile to the traditional mass. He says, but in the end, they're only bishops. And and I agree, you know, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, if is was universally received and implemented, which I don't see happening, you know, well, the worst is that we essentially go back to the situation before Samorum Pontificum, with some bishops allowing and some bishops forbidding. And, and so Father Z offers this advice, which I think is good advice. He says, friends, when your bishops do something good and generous regarding the traditional Roman rite, thank them. But when they do something stingy, work on them. How so? He says, with spiritual bouquets, fasting, sincere requests. He said, be the woman at the door of the judge before you turn to more drastic measures. And he's referring to the parable of the unjust judge, or it's also known as the uh, the parable of the persistent widow. It's from Luke 18, 1 through 8, and it's that parable about the judge who lacks compassion, but is repeatedly approached by this woman seeking justice until he finally gives in. And not because he had suddenly become compassionate, mind you, but because of the woman's persistence. And that was our Lord's way of telling us that in these difficult times, that what we must do is retain our humility and be persistent in prayer and persistent in, you know, uh, putting up with the persecution as, you know, some traditional Catholics have already done for decades. All right. Uh, you know, I want to, as always, want to thank you for being with us today. Got more to say, but not a lot of time to say it, and so I'm not going to jump into it. Maybe next week we'll talk about the, the reception uh, by the bishops that have uh, gone public with their reaction, although I know a lot of them uh, have largely taken the wait-and-see attitude, kind of, you know, gonna, we're going to give this further study, right? That's, that's what you say when you want to wait until you find out which direction the wind's blowing before you commit yourself, and, and that's fine. I think, you know, uh, the more that they don't do anything, the better for everybody involved. But uh, in the meantime, I want to remind you that we got a conference coming up this weekend. If you're in Southern California, you can make it to the uh, to the chapel here in Covina, the Sacred Heart Chapel. Go to vmpr.org, and you can uh, register for the Sex and Honor uh, conference with Dr. Luis Sandoval. Also, if you can't make it here, you can check it out. Uh, we're going to be live streaming on Facebook. So just go to vmpr.org, find out all about it uh, with a... Uh, it's going to be a terrific day with understanding the Catholic uh, uh, teaching on human sexuality, which so so very important, so very necessary uh, for Catholics today when there is so much confusion about this issue and many others. Also, I uh, want to say thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Those of you who are able to support us financially, we really appreciate it. Again, you can go to vmpr.org, hit that Donate Now button, become a monthly donor, make a one-time donation. And if not, please, please keep us in your prayers, because that, we also need your spiritual support. And until uh, next time, may God richly bless you and your family.